Amen. Thank you so much, worship team, and happy Independence Day to y'all. So glad to see all of you here this morning. I know that we have some guests because of the holiday. Y'all, we're so excited that you are here and decided to come and be a part, or maybe you didn't decide, you're with family. Either way, we're glad that you are here and are a part of our service this morning. Y'all, we're going to be continuing into our Acts series this morning, so I would ask you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, if you don't have a copy with you, it will be on the screen for you. But Acts chapter 6, and as you're turning there, I would like to ask, have any of you ever had a growth spurt before? A growth spurt. Some of you are shaking your head no. You see, my, my dad has told me, you know, the older he gets, the more growth spurts he has, just in ways he doesn't like, as far as growth spurts go. But y'all, if you know anything about growth spurts, it seems like most people at some point have some growth spurt. I remember whenever I was a kid... I was always the shortest kid in my class, me and one other guy, Peyton Mitchell and Sonny Peters. We three, we always were battling for who's going to be the shortest in the class. You know, all growing up, this was always kind of an insecurity of mine, and I, I know it was an insecurity because I had all these reasons for why being shorter was better, right? Like, I could get the ball whenever nobody else could get in that small hole, or I could do these things nobody else could do. Well, going into seventh grade, I was four foot ten, and I was the shortest, one of the shortest guys in my class, like I said. Well, going into eighth grade, I was five foot eight. So I was four foot ten going into seventh grade, five eight going into eighth grade. And then I grew an inch a year after that until now I'm six foot tall. And my whole point is whenever I had that growth spurt, there were some serious growing pains. I mean, I remember whenever it was just a time whenever I'd walk, my shins just felt like they were bowing, like there were all kinds of issues. There were growing pains also. I liked to play sports, but whenever I got a lot taller, I had to learn what do I do with longer arms. And longer legs, and you know, what do I, how do I learn to do this? There were growing pains also outside of myself. There were growing pains for my parents. The eating bill raised drastically whenever I went through my growth spurt. I began to eat anything and everything. They had to spend a lot of money on my clothes, on my shoes. Uh, if you know anything, especially teenage boys, it seems like you go from a size 6 to a size 12 overnight. Um, but somehow or another, you got to buy shoes all the way through. I mean, there are growth pains anytime you grow. You know, the truth is, is in a church, very much so in a similar way, if a church grows, there are going to be growing pains. There are going to be things that you have to work through. And the title of the sermon this morning is Church Growth Cycles. And the reason I titled it that was because growing pains was already taken by a bunch of people. I didn't want to steal the title from somebody else. But Church Growth Cycles. And it seems like in a church, as the church grows, you're going to learn there are increased needs in the church. Increased responsibilities within the church. More people, which means more possibility for conflict, right? More stuff, more needs that come up in the church. I love how Tony Morita, a pastor in North Carolina, says this. He says, gospel growth in the church will always bring blessing, problems, and opportunity. And today what we're going to be looking at is really a different text. So far in Acts, honestly, the text, each of them have really been for you individually. You can really be hit with the text and hit with the sermon and understanding it and realizing I got to apply this somewhere. There's something I must go do. And there is individual application from the sermon this morning. But this sermon, really this text is based on the church as a body, as a whole. And what happens when conflict arises? What do we do? How do we work through it? What are our expectations? Because if we want to grow, we can expect three things, blessings, problems, and opportunities. And what we're going to look at this morning is just a dual threat. I'm going to lay out two threats that we see that happen to the church, two problems that come up, 
And then a dual solution that the apostles give in order to remedy it. Let me pray for us, then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the truth that anytime we open it, you are speaking to us. And Father, as we look at this text this morning, really the first sign of conflict within the body, God, I pray, Lord, help us diagnose our own hearts. Lord, help us, if we're a part of a church here or a part of a church somewhere else, Lord, help us look to ourselves and ask questions. Are we promoting growth in it and unity or promoting division or some other aspect that doesn't need to happen within the church? Father, help us look to the model that you've given us and help us follow your word, God. We ask all this in your precious and holy son's name. Amen. If you've been with us, you know this so far, that the church in Acts, the, the whole title of our series is is the movement begins. And it's the idea of how the church, just whenever it came on the scene, 120 people, a movement began. And shortly we see 120 people began to be 3,000 people in a day. And then 3,000 people, by chapter 4 of Acts, it's 5,000 fellow believers in Christ. And in chapter 5, we see that people are growing. More people are coming to know Jesus. Multitudes are coming to know Jesus. And we end chapter 5, verse 42. It says this. It says, And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they, meaning the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What we see is some incredible things are happening within the church. They're battling persecution from the outside. They've battled hypocrisy from within. God has exposed it. God has continued to keep his church pure, unified, generous. And then we see that they're going about teaching Jesus. And then get to chapter 6, verse 1. And it says this. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so as the church was growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we get here, and verse 1 gives us this threat. First point this morning is there's a possible threat we see here, and that possible threat is division. The first thing we see is a possible threat, and the possible threat is division. Let's set the setting again. Remember, the disciples are growing. The church is growing quickly. Remember, I said by chapter 5, so there's 5,000 believers. But then they're growing in multitudes even after that. From what I read, there were people who were somewhat in between all over the spectrum of how big the church would have been at this point. But most fell between 8,000 and 10,000 people. So what you have is the first ever mega church in a church that's not very old with only 12 people who are apostles as their leaders. And as you would expect, with this many people, a complaint arose. Now, this word complaint here, it means a murmuring, a grumbling arose amongst the people. What does murmuring or grumbling sound like? It sounds like it's going all throughout here, right? But it never tends to come here, right? Or to the 12 apostles. It's this grumbling. Maybe it was in this certain group or whatever. We see this group where there was grumbling was a group called the Hellenists. To understand this, we need to understand who made up the early church. There's primarily two different types of people. It was people who all, they were formerly Jewish, but they were Jews who now became followers of Jesus. And there were two different types of Jews in this regard. There were Hellenists, which were Greek-speaking, Greek-culturally Jews. These were people who were not from Palestine or from the middle area of the Promised Land. They were from all the other regions around. Remember, they came in for Pentecost, just for a festival, to be there for a week and then to go back home. They came to faith in Jesus, and they stayed. So you have Greek-speaking, Greek culture, Greek-influenced believers, 
who were in the church. And then you have the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the people who were in Palestine, who were in Jerusalem, who'd always been around. They were Aramaic-speaking. Their culture was Israeli. They, they, they were different culturally, and yet a complaint was arising against them, which I'm glad we don't see that today, right? So what was the complaint? The Hellenists were complaining against the Hebrews, and why were they complaining? Because the Hebrew widows were getting better treatment, supposedly, in the daily distribution. Or a better way to put it, the way it says here, the Hellenists were complaining because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What's the daily distribution? That doesn't mean a whole lot to us. We don't have a daily distribution here. Well, what happened in the early church is every day they went around and they gathered food. They gathered resources. And every day they distributed that food and distributed those resources. Remember, a lot of people that are part of this church are from out of town, came in, they stayed, have no houses, have no food, have no provision for longer than a one-week stay, and yet the church here is taking care of them. This is what the daily distribution was. You know, at, at first look, you look at this, and you think this is an issue of discrimination. It seems fairly obvious, honestly, maybe you first look at it. You say, okay, Hellenists, Hebrews, Hebrews widows are taken care of, Hellenists are not. But honestly, the more I read this, most people don't think this to be the case, and it's because of this. In verse 1, whenever it says their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that word neglected in Greek means overlooked. It means they were slipping through the cracks. In other words, the demands of having to get food to eight to 10,000 people, to different widows, to whoever it might be, these people were slipping through the cracks. And it makes sense. If people in Murray lived in Murray their whole life, became a part of our church, it would be easy for you to go, oh, do you know so-and-so's at our church now? Let's do this, this, and this. But what about if somebody moves from Chicago or from Louisiana, you know, and moves up here? You know, you wouldn't hardly, it's easier for them to slip through the cracks, right? They don't know people. And this is the case of what we're seeing here. I mean, you can imagine the logistics of a continually growing crowd and yet trying to take care of them at the same time. Basically, the issue that we have in front of us is not one of discrimination, but a need for administration. A need for administration. And this issue was important. It needed to be resolved because if it didn't, what would happen? Hellenists versus the Hebrews. It could become an issue. It could become a divide in the early church. So the possible threat we see is that of division. So what happens? Look at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, And the twelve meaning the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. Y'all think about this. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. What we have here is our first ever church business meeting, to which everyone smiles at, right? Now if I want to try and get out of it, I, somebody's going to come back and say, look, business meetings are biblical, right? So first ever church business meeting, eight to 10,000 people. And it says this, it is not right that we should give up. The apostles say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Hear that again. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This response is interesting, right? I think there's two things to note. One, it sounds brash. Does it not? It's not right for us to do this. We shouldn't give up preaching God's word to go and serve tables. That's the way it sounds, right? It also sounds extremely defensive. They're not just saying, hey, here's an issue they're addressing, apparently, what's been told to them. It's not right for us to stop doing this in order to do this. Well, think about it. Acts 5.42, it's the apostles who are going around to the houses. They're a part of them, not the only ones, but they're a part of the people going around to people's houses. 
who are trying to teach God's word, what do you think they're hearing as they travel? This is going on. You need to do something about it. This is going on. You need to do something about it. This is going on. You need to do something about it. The murmuring and complaining was coming to them. If not directly, it was definitely getting to them. Surely people were looking for the apostles to be there. Peter, you're doing all these miracles. Do a miracle. Be two places at once. You've got to get spread out. Do all of the work. It was clear that the issue was that they wanted the apostles to do more. But the apostles said, we're not going to. Why? Well, it's probably because the apostles were big shots, right? They said, guys, look, we don't do that type of stuff. We just preach. We just get to saved. No, that wasn't it at all. Is it possible that maybe they just missed, they forgot that Jesus washed their feet and said, as I've done to you, go and do to others, which means serve other people, be the lead servant in your church? I don't think the issue was they forgot that either. No, actually, they recognized there was a danger in this problem that was addressed to them. There was a danger in them doing this, which is not the possible threat we talked about earlier. It's the real threat of this whole passage, and I'll prove it as we go through. First, the possible threat is division, but the real threat of this passage is distraction. The real threat of this passage is distraction. I don't know if you in here have ever heard of a TED Talk or not, but a TED Talk, I enjoy watching them. I don't watch a lot, but I enjoy them. They're very interesting. A TED Talk has to be 18 minutes or less, and it can be about just about anything. They'll call people in. Sometimes it'll be three minutes long, but they'll ask people their story, or they'll ask them to tell about their company, or they'll ask them to share how they do what they do, or whatever it might be. The neatest TED Talk I've ever seen was one called The Art of Misdirection. I would challenge, I mean, I would encourage all of you, go watch it. It's eight and a half minutes long, and it's incredible. But this guy named Apollo Robbins, he gets up, and he says, this morning I'm going to talk to you about the art of misdirection. And then he tells his occupation. For 20 years now, I've been a professional pickpocket. And you can imagine the people out there, maybe they're whatever, but he says right after that, he says, and I've been parousing the room, you can check your pockets, don't worry, I haven't taken anything, but I'm a professional pickpocketer, and he begins to talk to them, and he says, the way that you pickpocket someone is it's actually fairly simple. He said, you see in our brains, I want you to imagine that, well, he, he begins by saying, your brain cannot do two things at once. Ladies, you've been trying to tell your husbands this all the time, stop looking at that, listen to me, right? Your brains can't do two things at once. And he says, think of it like this. He says, I want you to imagine you have a little person inside your head. And he had the guy's name. He called him like Bobby or something like that. So Bobby, whenever we're going out throughout the day, Bobby's at the front of my brain and he's just typing. He's seeing things. He's hearing things. He's feeling things. He's taking in information. But the second you ask me a question, Bobby has to turn around from taking in information, turn around, go to the filing cabinet, and pick out the answer to the question. He says, so if you ask people questions, if they're truly thinking how to answer, they can't do two things at once. Bobby can't do two things at once. He's either at the filing cabinet or he's using his senses, looking out. And he says, I could tell you about this or I could show you. He goes out to the crowd. He brings the guy up on stage. And remember, this guy's a pickpocket. And he sits there and he's talking to the guy, doing stuff with it. And before you know it, the guy's watch is on his hand. The guy didn't even know it. He keeps talking to him. Before you know it, he's talking to him, and he's holding his money up behind his back. Took it out of his pocket without him even knowing. He's doing all this on the stage in front of everyone. Then he, you know, tells the guy, thank you so much. Gives him, you know, he says, I'll give you a prize. He gives him his watch back. Thank you for, thank you for being here. And he goes and he sits back down. And the guy at the very beginning of the story, I think the coolest part, which I hate it if you do go watch it. I'm going to spoil it for you. But at the beginning, he tells him, he says, some of us are perceptive, some of us are not. He asks everybody to close their eyes. And he says, I want you to imagine, what am I wearing? 
what colors am I wearing? The guy's wearing a sport coat, everything tucked in, looking nice and neat. Well, not the sport coat, obviously, but his clothes tucked in, looking nice and neat. He's wearing a purple vest and a purple tie. And at the end of his speech, he says, what am I wearing? And his shirt's untucked, hanging out to about right here. He has no tie on, no vest on anymore. And he simply says, if you can get somebody's attention, you can get them to do anything. His whole point, he keeps coming back to that. If you can control someone's attention, you can do all sorts of things without them even realizing it. Truly, attention is a powerful thing, which means that distraction and misdirection are as well. I want you all to hear this quote from John Stott on this passage. He says, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three he'd done so far. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution from the outside or corruption within, he now is trying distraction. Distraction. If you can't corrupt them from the work, he will distract them from the work, even with something good. This is a need. It's not good that these widows were being, being neglected or overlooked, right? It wasn't good. But if we could distract the leaders from doing what they were called to do, then they would not be able to continue to grow as they are. I want you to see the breakdown of these verses. I put it up on the screen. To help you kind of understand, you need to understand the words in this passage are extremely similar. Verse 1, you see there are widows who are being neglected in the distribution. The word distribution is the word service. The widows are being neglected in the service. You see then whenever the disciples respond, the apostles respond, it's not right that we should give up preaching. The word give up there means neglect. The apostles say we should not neglect our service, which is the ministry of the word, the ministry of preaching. In other words, yes, the widows are being neglected their service, but we don't need to neglect our service in order to take care of that. They're drawing the words and tying them together. Now, there's a crucial principle in all of this, and that's this. The ministry of the word of God must never be neglected for any reason. The ministry of the word of God must never be neglected for any reason. The thing that makes the church different than the nonprofit down the road is we just don't provide a service. We're based in around God's word. Everything is built on God's word. Every, even if there's a legitimate need, even that of some sweet widows, as I'm sure they were, we do not need to neglect the word of God for any reason. And if this seems off base, stick with me to the end, and I will show you how this is the main thing that this whole passage is about. It's not really about the widows. It's about the word of God. So how are they going to solve this problem? Because the people are looking at them. Look at verse 3. He finishes, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Then he says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The two solutions they give are going to be the solutions to the problems that we've seen, the threats we've seen. Solution one is delegation. Solution one is delegation. If the possible threat is division from increasing demands, solution one is delegate. Delegate to other people that they might be able to do this. You know, you could look at this whenever you see them say, pick out seven men, we'll appoint them to do it. And you could think, man, they're just passing this off to other people because they don't want to do it. And that's just simply not true. I like how Matt Smithurst in his book, Deacons, he writes this. The apostles did not delegate this responsibility to others because it wasn't important but rather because it was. You can tell this is important by their directive. Notice they don't say, hey, church, pick out seven people, pick out seven, you know, whatever. Pick out the scrubs amongst you, send them up, and let's have them do this. No, look at the standards that he says. First, he says, pick out people among you. The word pick out there means select, 
carefully seven men who possess these characteristics. And he says what? Men who are of good repute. In other words, they must have a good reputation with the people that are around them. They must stand out. They must have a good reputation in their community. Their image and their character must be true to who they say they are. Secondly, he says, full of the Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? It means these people were obedient servants. They obeyed the Lord. To be full of the Spirit is to not be full of yourself. You can't be both. These people were humble leaders who wanted to serve, and they were full of the Spirit. Third, we see full of wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? From the Spirit, from God's Word. These people knew God's Word and follow God's Word. And what they're saying is pick out these people. Pick out the leaders among you, essentially, to serve those who are considered to be the least among you. They're called out for service. These men were leaders in their community by their love and devotion to Jesus, and they were called out to serve in this capacity. And what's neat is we see that the apostles had all authority to say pretty much whatever they wanted to, but they said, we want you to pick out seven from among you. We want you to pick out these leaders from among you, and then we will commission them for this role. Y'all, quick note before we move on past this. While the deacon office in the local church is not necessarily set up by this passage, there's no office of deacon that now has been created, we do see the role of deacon has begun here. The word deacon literally just means serve. Anytime you see the word serve in this passage, the word is deacon. That's what the Greek word actually is. There's no difference in the word serve and deacon. So in other words, whenever it says that the widows were not being served, then they weren't being deacons. Whenever the apostles say we need to serve through the word, they're saying we need a deacon through the word. The word deacon means to serve. This is what a deacon is. Literally, he is a servant who's serving in a leadership capacity. And what we see here is also the practice that we ought to use. How do you get deacons within a church? Well, you ask the body to present forward people who have these exemplary characteristics, and you let them lead in the way that they're called to lead. They should be lead servants in the church, not lead servants because they're appointed to it. They should already be lead servants and then put in the role to serve. They should display these characteristics as well as what we see in 1 Timothy 3. They should seek to promote unity as done here, fill in the gaps as done here, and seek to physically care for the people that are in the body as we see done here. Now, once again, as the church grows, so do its needs. And the needs cannot all be met by certain leadership that's in place. As you continue to grow, you need to continue to delegate to others. This is the apostles' way of doing it, and it should be ours as well. Look at verse 4. Going on from here, verse 4 says this. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice he says we're going to delegate, but we are going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Of the word. Solution one is delegation. Solution two is great devotion. It's devotion. It's continued devotion. Whereas delegation preserves unity over division, devotion preserves focus over distraction. It keeps the main thing as the main thing. The apostles say that we are going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now think about those two things. I think it's interesting to note that they say to prayer first. You know, we talk a lot about prayer in our church. We talk a lot about how, you know, the power that's in prayer. We can't do anything on our own, but in practice, do we often fail to really actually live like that? If we say that we need the power of God to help us, do we pray? Do we seek his help? 
the apostles know very clearly if they want God to continue to bless them, they need to spend much time with this God, with God in prayer. Secondly, he says, we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. Once again, the word deacon. We're going to deacon ourselves to the word, to the ministry of the word. I want you to see the verse breakdown once again as I pull this up and let you see kind of the way that verses one through four are really shaping out. Verse one, widows are being neglected of a service. The apostles do not need to neglect their service. So they select seven men who will serve widows physically, while the apostles will continue to serve through the word spiritually. This is the model for the local church. Now, does that mean that the apostles don't ever serve physically? No. Does that mean that the people in the church don't ever serve spiritually? No. That doesn't mean that by any means. But this is the primary way they are called to serve. What I also love about the way this is listed is it shows us that no service is better than another. It is not greater to be a pastor than to be a preschool teacher. It is not greater to help in this capacity than to sit out there and hand out bulletins. It's not greater. It's just different. We have different giftings, different callings, different roles. Some have greater responsibility, yes, to the top responsibility of me, where one day I have to stand before the Lord and give account for how I've shepherded people. That's a little scary. But down to the people who have to say, you know what, I had three-year-olds given into my care. I had fifth graders given to my care. I had to help with youth. Whatever it might be, we use our different giftings and callings with the different responsibilities we get in the church. By delegating these responsibilities, the apostles were able to care for the people's spiritual needs, while the deacons were able to care for the people's physical needs. Look at verse 5 and 6, what comes from this. Verse 5, it says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, listen, we have seen several miracles throughout the book of Acts so far, but can we be honest, this is probably the greatest one. Like a bunch of church people, eight to 10,000 people, what they said, it pleased all of them. Let's be honest, this is the greatest miracle so far in Acts. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Apparently one of those stipulations is you had to have an interesting name to be a, a deacon as well. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So what they said pleases the gathering. Instead of Peter going to a door, Nicanor is now the one showing up at the door, and there's not complaints. Y'all think about this. Can you imagine if, if, if Peter was, used to be serving in this capacity, now he no longer is, couldn't you hear people saying, Peter hasn't come to visit me? Peter hasn't delivered my food today. Peter needs to be the one to give this to me. Who is Nicanor? Who are you? And what are you doing in my house? Right? But all the people recognize, okay, in order to do this, we have to share the responsibilities and share the load. Once again, that doesn't mean that the apostles didn't serve physically. It meant that they didn't do that to neglect of their spiritual leadership. Verse 6, it says, they brought these men before the leaders and they commissioned them, affirming the choice and giving it their blessing. And y'all, we see the results in verse 7. And this is where we really get the key to this passage. Verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I said already, the issue that was presented was that widows were being neglected. But the threat that is occurring is the word of God could be neglected. And what we have to see here is notice, if the primary issue of this passage is that the widows are being neglected, then the conclusion and the result should be, and the widows were taken care of. The widows were being cared for. But what's the conclusion? 
The first time we see it written like this in all of Acts, we see that the word of God spread. People were spreading it. But here we see actually the word of God continue to increase. God's word continue to increase. In other words, the crisis was averted that could have, have distracted them from taking God's word throughout the area to God's people and to those who hadn't known him yet. Once again, the ministry of the word of God must never be neglected for anything, even if that thing is a legitimate need of widows or of some other need in the church. What was the result of them not being distracted? You see here, it increased and it multiplied. Y'all, both of these words in Greek are a, a imperfect tense. In other words, they are constant. They are continuing to increase. They are continuing to multiply. In other words, they saw incredible fruit because they did not get distracted from the mission. In the end, the devil's plan to distract ended up being God's plan for the church to expand. It turned from his plan to a grand opportunity for the church. Once again, I told you, this is a very church-related text. So how can we respond to this this morning? Well, I'll tell you just four ways. One, we need to praise God that we can say our church is growing. We can praise God that we can say our church is growing. One thing that, that I notice as I talk to friends, or, or if you look online, you see statistics, 80%, 85% of churches are either plateaued or declining. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know this, a lot of people have come out of COVID struggling financially, and we are not at all. We're on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. We are well overprepared financially. Some people came out of COVID saying, where are our people at? And surely there are some people that haven't come back. But I find more often than not, we have what one sweet lady, whenever she came in one day, she said, who are all of these new people? I said, well, it's a good thing that there's new people coming. She's like, yeah, I know, I'm just wondering where they came from, right? You know, we, we've been blessed to have more people coming. And I know sometimes it might not feel like it because we do have two different services and people are, are flip-flopped in those. But it is a great thing that we should praise God for whenever we see the church growing the way it's supposed to grow. So the second thing that we should do to respond today is we need to watch out for the possibility of division or distraction in our church. We need to watch out for the possibility of division or distraction in our church. Y'all, what's interesting that I've found is the devil does not come up with new methods of how he attacks people. He doesn't. The sad thing is he doesn't have to. We continue to fall for the same things over and over again. I've said this before. 1 John 2.16 tells you and me every way you and I are going to be distracted and tempted in our life. It's going to be in one of three ways, either pleasure, possessions, or pride. Everything falls into one of those three categories. That's the way the devil is going to tempt us. How is he going to tempt the church? You can best believe that he's going to try and divide us. You can best believe he's going to take real needs or even silly things and try and divide the church. Why wouldn't he? If a church is divided, how can they be united in their front against the devil? They can't, right? Distraction. If a church is doing well, what are they going to do? The devil's going to try and distract them with other things. Distraction, whatever gets your focus, gets you. And so what I would tell you, be on your guard against any murmuring or complaining in our church. What was the number one characteristic of the Israelites as they surrounded or surrounded the promised land for 40 years? As they wondered, it's this word murmur. They murmured and they complained. We're never more like the wandering Israelites than whenever we are complaining and murmuring about what we're not getting in our church. We're never more like them. Is there any murmuring or complaining in you, in me? Y'all, it's just as bad to complain on my end about the people and the people. Blah, 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 blah. I've heard pastors and all that. I've been subject to it at times. Well, man, well, this is just going on here. 
What's complaining going to do? I read a quote not too long ago that says, if you don't love your church where they're at today, you don't deserve to lead them where they're at tomorrow. And man, isn't that convicting? You know, all of us are people. All of us have struggles. None of us are perfect. I know that y'all don't think I'm perfect. Sometimes I make that, and I hope some people at least look a little bit surprised. And y'all don't. Y'all know I'm not perfect, right? Nobody is perfect, but we must guard ourselves against any murmuring or complaining. Are there issues that need to be raised? Absolutely, but do it in a constructive way, not in a destructive way. The truth is this, with growth comes new challenges. And by God's grace, I hope we see blessings and problems and opportunities as he continues to bless our church. But we can expect new challenges, whether it's about a building or about a service or about rooms for Sunday school, about it being less pastor-driven and more team-driven or more ministry needs or more ministry opportunities to serve or where, you know, my old pastor used to do this for us where I can't do that for you because the needs are growing or this, my deacon, used to be like this or whatever it might be. As we grow, we must shift and we must recognize that in order for God's kingdom to continue to be advanced, we must change with it. And praise God for growth. Regardless, we must always be on our guard against division and disunity. The third way that we need to respond this morning is this. We need to see growth as a grand opportunity for more service. We need to see growth as a grand opportunity for more service. A growing church must become a serving church. If a church is growing, we'll have growing needs, and therefore we'll need more people to begin to serve. Y'all have noticed something. If you go to a really small church, let's say 50 people, you know who's doing almost everything at that church? One person. Still, it shouldn't be, even with 50 people, but usually it's the pastor doing everything. The church gets a little agitated whenever they start growing, because whenever they start growing, what happens? The pastor can't do everything. Now, what happens? They complain, or they say, you know what, there's more need. We need to step up, and we need to serve. As you go from 100 to 200, that's another big growth phase. Whenever you get to 200, it's no longer one big family anymore. It's 200 different people, right? Most of us only have 15 family members in our family, and we have enough trouble with them. Why would we want to be 200, one big family, right? With 200 people, there's more need. You need more people to serve. Whenever you get close to our size, 300 to 350, you have more need. You need more people to serve. Y'all, whenever we grow, we should see this as a grand opportunity for more people to get involved and for more people to serve. Remember, church growth cycles. Whenever we grow, there'll be increased needs, possible conflict, possible distractions, and we can make plans for either health or stagnancy or decline. But we must seek every opportunity to serve and to grow in that regard. What does that mean for us? It means that being a part of the local church is not a spectator sport. It's coming here to be involved, to get going. And, you know, I ask you to continually look for areas of need and either jump in and serve in that regard or bring it up to me. Bring it up to somebody else. Let's figure out how we can continue to do this well with each other. You may be in your Sunday school class. If there's a need there, I know a lot of people see problems. Well, then meet the problem. Meet the need. You know, a quick issue that I'll point out as well regarding this is another thing that happens whenever a church grows is it's extremely, extremely easy to hide. It's extremely easy to be in and out every other weekend. It's extremely easy to honestly be very fickle with your dedication to a local church. In a church of 40, if you're not there, people are going, oh my gosh, a fifth of our congregation is gone. If you're in a church of 
300 or 350 and you're not there, so often you can think, well, nobody noticed anyway. And that's just not true. You might say, oh, the pastor didn't notice, right? That might not be true. I just might mean that I see a lot of people that aren't here. I don't need to go out and cold call all of them. Where were you, you know? But what's it mean? As the church grows, it's easier to hide. It's easier for you to come, sit, listen, and leave than ever before. It's easier to miss than ever before. And what I'm saying to you is as we grow, we must not let that be a characteristic of our church. Where our church members come, hide, and leave. We shouldn't desire that for our church. We should desire something greater for each other. And that's that we would be servants of one another. Or that we would each be ministers together. As Ephesians 4, 11-12 says, that God has gifted his apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. I'm not the only one that's a minister in this room. Every single person in here is, if you're a follower of Jesus. I don't know any believer that's called to come in and say, okay, here's the sideline. No, if you're called to be a follower of Jesus, you're called to serve for him. And the fourth and final thing is this. We must see growth as a grand opportunity. And lastly, we must, see gro- we must seek growth through the proper means. We must seek growth through the proper means. I'll say it this way, y'all. We need to make sure we are growing the right way. You know, every single Sunday, whenever I stand before y'all, hear me. I'm completely accountable to every single one of you in here. If you are members especially, I'm accountable to you. If you ever hear me say something that doesn't seem to jive with God's word, come and talk to me. I need to know that. I'm not infallible, remember? I'm not perfect, remember? If you have an issue, come and talk to me. There's an accountability aspect there of always preaching God's word. If there's something going on in a Sunday school class, I'm accountable as well. They are accountable as well. We need to make sure that we keep God's word at the center. And the reason I say this is because there are so many different thoughts of how can you grow a church today? How do you grow a church? Well, to grow a church, you put on a great show. It's about buildings, lights, and action. It's about having the biggest events. It's about, you know what, you need to speak up more on social issues and speak out on these things. You know, you need to compromise on your convictions a little bit. Embrace the world a little bit more if you really want to grow. You know, if you really want to grow, you just need to use whatever means necessary to attract people. And that's just not true. I heard a pastor preaching this week talking about something completely unrelated to this. And he said that there are other churches in their community that are struggling to get people. So they have thought, we have to find new ways to draw people in. But the issue is that they were trying to find new ways to draw people in without feeding them God's word. One church said, you know what, we're going to build a putt-putt course in the middle of our church. Literally. A putt-putt course in the middle of our church. We'll get people to come and see, and maybe that will make them want to stay. You know, if a putt-putt course is more attractive than Jesus, you're not preaching the gospel. Another church, they, to get more baptisms, to get more people involved, they actually installed a slide that would slide into the baptistry, which would be ridiculous if it wasn't true. It'd be even more ridiculous if I heard on the day that they commissioned it, the pastor preached his sermon while he slid down the slide. How long did that take? Right? Please don't tell me you're wishing that you were at that church. This other churches are fashion shows. May we bring this in. Certain movie nights, regardless of what's in the movie or not. Bring people in. How can we bring churches in? Y'all hear me. You can grow a church, but just because it grows doesn't mean it's good. You know, I think all of us know this. Not all growth is healthy growth, right? I joke, I go back to my dad just because he's easy and he's okay to pick with. 
My dad used to always talk about how he grew whenever he was in the weight room. He was happy about that growth. He's not happy about the growth that happens now, right? There is good growth, and there is bad growth. There is growth that we encourage, and there's growth that we don't. We don't want to swell. We want to grow strong. We don't want to just get more people. We talked about this last week. Mass plus velocity equals momentum in gospel ministry, not just a large group. A larger church doesn't make any difference if Jesus isn't at the center of it. I know this, putt-putting courses will never change someone's life, but someone's life, but I know that Jesus does. Jesus will. Our goal is not just growth, rather it is to grow in Christ, to expand his kingdom and not ours. And the terrible danger that's fallen to so many churches today is they do whatever method they can while sacrificing the message. And we must never do that. Yes, let's try new methods to reach people. But new methods are never greater than the message that we preach. So the point is this. We want to grow because of the grand message of Jesus. And how do we grow? We grow it the same way we see the church growing here. We grow it on the word of God. Keeping God's word at the focus. And whenever we keep God's word at the focus, we know that he will bless us as he chooses to do so. Y'all, we're called to keep preaching the word, to be about the word, to keep sharing Christ to keep him at the center and focus on him in all that we say and all that we do. And as we do, he will bless us. I want to end this just with an illustration. So I don't know if you've ever heard a story before um, where you actually went to share it later on and you realize that maybe you fabricated some of those parts of the story accidentally. So there's a story that I've been sharing for a while now that I heard of my brother whenever I was 11 and he was uh, overseas in Afghanistan serving. And uh, this story I've told for, I mean, probably since I was 11 or 12, so that gives you a good long while. I'm 31, um, so I've told it for a while now. And I finally called my brother this week because I was going to share it, and whenever I told him the story, he said, yeah, that's not true. So I'll tell you the story, and then I'll tell you the true story. So the story as I remember it is this. My brother was in Afghanistan. He's at a base that was surrounded by mountains, which is true. But around them, I thought that there were landmines that were put out around them. And what happened is, is they would be bored oftentimes. There was a lot to do, but not always stuff to do. They'd have a lot of free time. And so I do know they sent weight equipment over there for them to work out, but they also sent golf clubs and a bunch of golf balls. And what they would do during their spare time is they would hit golf balls out around them, and every once in a while, it would hit a trip mine. And what happens whenever it hits a mine? Like, it blows up, right? That's my story. Real story is, Nick said, Merrick, they sent one golf club, a few golf balls, so we could got tired of running around and finding them, and I've never even been around a trip mine, so I don't know what you're talking about. So obviously, I embellished a lot to that story. But y'all, I think this is interesting. As a church, we've been given one tool, God's Word. What we're called to do is to use this tool and to use it and to use it and to use it. And just like hitting a golf ball out into a field that has a trip mine somewhere, eventually, whenever God wants to move, He works. And whenever he does, an explosion occurs. And you see God's church growing and more happening. What happens if we say, you know what, this tool isn't good enough anymore. Let's take the golf ball out there and just throw it on a trip mine. What would happen? It would blow up in your face, right? Even crazier would be, let's just go step on it. You don't use any methods that will compromise the tool that God has given us. And this is the truth. At our church, we will continue to put God's word before God's people and let God change us if he chooses to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for today. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for passages like this.
to help us understand that the early church was not perfect. They had struggles. They had issues. They had people complain, which is hard to even imagine with the 12 apostles and all that's going on. Lord, it doesn't matter what's going on in our church. There's always going to be problems that need to be faced or maybe murmurings that need to be silenced. Maybe gossip that's going around that doesn't need to be there. Or maybe some good things that need to be told to upper leadership so we might can change them. God, we know this. No church is perfect. But you don't call us to be perfect. You call us to point people to you, the only perfect one. Yes, people call the church a bunch of hypocrites, but we say there's room for one more. All of us struggle to live for you as we're called to. But all of us know we are living to raise you up, to live for you. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, help us respond this morning in a way that honors and glorifies you as we seek to fulfill your mission, to reach people that are here in Murray and around the world through your name. We ask all this, Lord, in your precious, in your holy son's name. Amen. God, we just ask you, maybe you need to respond in one of the four ways I just talked about. Maybe this morning you just need to stop and really praise God for what he's doing at our church. Secondly, maybe this morning you need to really think about yourself and say, is there any murmuring or complaining in my heart? It's just natural for me to complain about something or to say something. You know, all of us, if we don't keep a guard over our mouth, James 3 is clear. It's like a boat. It's the rudder of a whole boat. If we let our tongue go, everything goes. Are we murmuring or complaining in any way? Maybe you need to ask forgiveness from the Lord for complaints or whatever it might be. Maybe you need to get accountability. Tell your Sunday school class, the people that you hang out with, if you hear this in me, tell me to stop or to do something about it. Third, I would ask you this, are you looking for ways to serve in our church? As our church is growing, our nursery needs are growing. Our kids' ministry needs are growing. Our youth ministry needs will continue to be growing. Our needs to serve in small groups are growing. Our needs to serve people are growing. Our needs to, to, to have people join and be these type of men, to have more deacons are growing. The needs of our church are growing, and the staff are not called to do everything. Because let's be honest, guys, I'm not that gifted. I'm not that gifted to do everything. Brave's not that gifted to do everything. None of us are. We need each other to be the body of Christ he's called us to. Are you looking for ways to serve in your church? The fourth and final question I would ask you is, yes, the apostles say we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, but that's also what the church is called to do as well. To devote yourself to praying for our church, for our staff, for our deacons, for our Sunday schools, for our church in general to pray for the word, the ministry of the word might continue. Now this may be the way that we're called to serve, but it's not the only way. Once again, we see how did the kingdom grow so quickly in the early church? Because of the apostles, yes. Because of the leaders, yes. Because of the miracles, yes. But also because the people were going around and sharing Jesus. That's our responsibility as well. I'd ask you to fill your place. Respond as you feel like you need to do so.